Chapter five is communication. Every EMS call that we run on is going to involve communication, oftentimes in multiple forms. Radio communication uh, between us, dispatch, hospitals, so forth, involves specialized communication equipment. And when we're dealing with communication, we're also talking about communications between us and our patients. We have to be able to communicate effectively with patients, family members, bystanders, team members, and other healthcare providers as well. <clears throat> so components of an emergency communication system. We have a base station, and we're talking about pr primarily radios right here. So with a base station, these typically serve as dispatch and coordination centers. So where we would likely see base stations at is with a tower typically at a dispatch center. And are these base stations are going to be high power output, 80 to 150 watts, meaning that they, the higher the output, the further those radio signals are going to be able to travel. So again, base stations are, are going to be stationary. Again, typically at dispatch centers is where we see our base station. So again, we have an EMS comm center right here. has radios in it. Oftentimes, again, there's a tower at these comm centers, and they serve as base stations. We have land mobile radio systems as well. These are normally 20 to 50 watts with powers, worth of power, so not nearly as powerful as a base station. And these land mobile radios are typically vehicle mounted. So the radios that we have that are stationary in our ambulances that are mounted into our ambulances in the front, back, or both, those are land mobile radio systems. Again, these have lower power, in the base station, lower power means limited range. They can typically transmit 10 to 15 miles, and that's under absolute ideal circumstances. Flat terrain, no buildings, no mountains, so forth. On top of our truck radios, here's an example of our truck radios. Again, these are the radios that are mounted inside our ambulances. So if we're inside the truck, we typically talk on the truck radios. Again, you may have them mounted in the front and or back as well. Typically how we contact the hospital to give a patient care report is typically with our truck mounted radios as well. And then we also typically have portable radios. These are the ones that we wear on our bodies. Normally, they are very low powered, only one to five watts. They have their handheld transmitter and receiver. There's no additional antenna like there is with truck radios. Everything's built into one unit. Typically, only use these our mobile or portable radios when we are outside of the truck. <clears throat> very low powered, so they have very limited transmission range. However, with things like repeaters, we can boost 
that range and make them reach pretty far. So again, transmissions can be boosted by repeaters. And we'll talk a little bit about repeaters coming up. So there's what a example of a very old, old portable radio looks like. And again, we typically wear these on our belts. We talk, talk on them when we are outside of the truck. Again, with the use of a repeater, we can boost that signal, make it reach further. A repeater receives transmissions on one frequency and rebroadcasts it or repeats it on another frequency at higher power. So with our, say, our portable radios or even our truck radios, we don't have to reach our base station at the comm center. All we have to do is reach the closest repeater. If we can reach that closest repeater, that repeater will amplify that radio signal and then continue to transmit it until it either hits our base station or hits another repeater, and that process can keep going, keep going. Achieves, again, a greater radio range. And if you have enough repeaters available to you, you can technically, if I was working in Plainview, Texas, I could talk on a portable radio to a Lubbock EMS dispatcher if there's enough repeaters available. Repeaters can either be located in vehicles, typically not in, in vehicles, they're typically going to be located at fixed sites. So just an illustration of that, we have our base station at our comm center, then we have repeaters. Again, as long as that portable radio can hit that repeater, then that repeater will amplify it, move it down the line until it finally reaches that base station. And then we have our land mobile-based radios inside mounted in our truck. They also have digital equipment. Digital equipment is the standard. Uh, nowadays, FCC actually is making everybody move to digital equipment. What digital equipment does, it allows more radios to operate it on crowded frequencies. It digitizes the radio waves, compresses those radio waves, so it allows more frequencies available for use. They utilize encoders and decoders and encoder converts the sound waves to a digital code, decoders receive that digital code and then decodes that back into radio waves to where they can be heard. Digital equipment can also include things like our mobile data terminals that can transmit messages at a push of a button. So MDTs, can reduce radio traffic. Instead of having to call dispatch, we can just hit a button on a computer that tells dispatch we're en route to the scene or at the scene or so forth. So examples of MDTs, there you, this case over here, it's just a laptop toughbook that they've mounted in a truck. Again, we can get dispatch information on that. This one looks like specifically an MDT. UNC EMS, they use uh, iPads for their MDTs now. Again, all of our dispatch information comes on that tablet. They can see the address. They can see what's going on with the patient. They can update dispatch that they're en route, that they're at scene. Again, that can limit the amount of radio traffic that we're having to say on the radio. Uh, 
Another form of technology that we use for communication is going to be cell phones. Cell phones transmit through the air rather than over wires like a landline phone does. Some drawbacks to cell phones is that the towers can be overwhelmed in disaster situations or in crowded events. If you ever try to use your cell phone at a tech game to call somebody or send a message, you typically have a hard time getting a signal because that tower is overcrowded. If we have a tornado rip through Lubbock, that may be an issue trying to talk to people on cell phones. And cell phones over radios especially are gonna have excellent quality of sound. It's gonna be a lot easier to hear and understand on a cell phone than it is over a radio oftentimes. Again, cell phones, we use cell phones quite a bit as well. If we we may want to call the physician on a cell phone instead of talking them to them over the radio, we can get more specific over a cell phone than we can over a radio. Radios can be monitored, so we have to worry about HIPAA. We got to be careful what we say about the patient over the radio. It's not the case on a cell phone. There is an expectation of privacy on cell phones. So I can get more specific with that physician I'm talking to. I can give that patient's name over a cell phone where I couldn't over the radio. You also have things like telemetry, transmissions of patient data, typically to the receiving facility. We can transmit EKGs, vital signs, et cetera. Typically, and especially in this region, what we use telemetry for is for 12 lead EKGs. We have a patient that's having a heart attack. We will send that EKG to the hospital that goes to the ER or the ED. It also goes to the cardiologist that's on duty as well. So they can look at that EKG, confirm that it is a heart attack, and get the cath lab ready to go for our patient. Some situations we may also use land mobile satellite, satellite phones, or satellite radios for communication purposes as well. Often used in remote areas where we don't have the infrastructure for cell phones or radios or natural disasters where those towers are wiped out or are overcrowded. And these communication uses satellites to help relay a message. And that the AMBUS, hopefully we're gonna get the AMBUS out here for y'all to look at. There's satellite radios on that AMBUS. We have portable satellite radios that we can attach to any vehicle if we need them in the case of a disaster as well. So broadcast regulations, again, we what we say or do over the radio is regulated. Radio operations are governed by the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, and this is all radios, not just EMS, not just first responder radios, all radio traffic is regulated by the FCC. FCC is in charge of frequency assignments, power usage, radio call signs, and they can also monitor field operations as well. Again, you have to be careful what we say over that radio. We have a HIPAA violation. The FCC hears it. They can report it. Language that we use over the radio. We cuss over the radio. That technically is an FCC violation. Anytime we're dealing with any type of equipment, and this includes cell phones, radios, and so forth, there's got to be some type of maintenance with it. Normally for us, the type of maintenance that we provide to our equipment is cleaning. 
And that's one of the, oftentimes one of the things that we forget to clean in the back of the truck. I go on a major trauma. I'm covered in blood with my gloves. I still got to call a radio report. Am I going to take off my gloves to call a radio report? No, because it'll take me forever because my hands are sweaty. It'll take me forever to put them back on. So I'm going to reach up with dirty gloves and touch that microphone and give my report. Well, after the call's over, you've got to clean that radio and that microphone. And again, that's often forgotten about. Regular maintenance schedule, they need to be checked out ever so often, make sure that the batteries are in good shape, that they're holding a charge, that they're transmitting effectively and so forth. We need to make sure that we are, especially on our portables, changing and charging batteries, that we have access to backup batteries in case our portable radio batteries die. And those portable radios, if your service carries them, to me, that is a safety issue. You need to make sure your radio is working. That's a safety issue. If we get in a house and get attacked, we have no way of calling for help without a portable radio. So communication within the system. Where are we communicating at? EMTs, us, we're going to communicate with dispatch. They're going to have to tell us that we're getting a call. We're going to have to let them know what we have, where we're at, that we receive that call. There may be a point of contact where we have to contact medical direction, ask for advice or assistance on what to do next. And there's going to be communication with the receiving facility. We typically call the hospital to give them a heads up of what type of patient we're bringing to them. And we also have to give an in-person report when we get there, a verbal report. So there is the progression of radio traffic. Dispatch tells us we have a call. We have to acknowledge that we received the call that we're en route to the call, that we're at the call, that we are sometimes at patient's side, when we're transporting the patient, when we get to the receiving facility, then when we clear the hospital, we have to let them know, and when we're back at our station or our coverage area, we have to let dispatch know that as well. So dealing with radio communication, there are some ground rules that we need to follow. First, when we're talking on the radio, we have to make sure that it's turned on. So make sure that your radio is on and that the correct channel or frequency is selected as well. Make sure you know what frequencies we're supposed to be talking on. UMCMS, they have four channels that are dedicated nothing but nothing but for EMS operations. Before we just start keying up the mic and start talking, we need to listen. Make sure that we're not going to walk over somebody else's traffic. Because if we key up while somebody else is keyed up, nobody is hearing anything. It cancels those signals out. Nobody hears nothing. So we listen, make sure nobody else is talking. Then we can key up and start our report or whatever we need to say. When we're ready to talk, we're going to push the push to talk button or the PTT button and wait for one second before speaking. You're going to push that button and you're going to wait a brief second before we start speaking. If you start speaking at the same time you press that button, you're going to cut off the first part of your radio transmission. If we have digital equipment, again, which almost every EMS service now should have digital equipment, you'll get an audible tone when that channel is clear and open. It'll beep at you. That's telling you you can go ahead and talk. If that push to talk doesn't activate, we don't reach a open frequency for whatever reason, a different harsher audible sound will alarm you that you're not ready to talk, try again. 
You want to place the microphone two or three inches away from your mouth. You don't want to swallow the microphone and you don't want it too far out here. You want it two or three inches away from your face. Speak slowly, clearly, and calmly. If you are anxious, you're freaking out, you're not speaking calmly, your traffic is going to get extremely garbled and nobody's going to understand what you're saying. So speak slowly, calmly, and clearly. You should address the unit being called by its name and number and then identify your unit by name. So if I'm calling UMC to give radio report, I'm going to use this format, UMC 229. This is UMC EMS 9741. So 229 is a call sign from UMC. 9741 is an example of the truck that I would be on. So the person we're calling first, then our truck number. And that's it. That's that's our initial point of contact. We're going to call them, and we're, we call this the gatekeeper method. I'm not going to just start giving my report until I know UMC is ready for that report. So again, UMC 229, this is 9741. Unkey the mic and wait for a response. The unit you're calling should respond with go ahead or stand by. Stand by means they're not ready to give a report. They'll contact us when they're ready. They say, go ahead. They, what they typically say, the hospitals in this region, they're going to tell you to re-identify and go ahead. So we'll say, they tell us, go ahead. 9741, we're in route to your location. Again, that gatekeeper method, they said for us to go ahead, that's when we're going to start our report. Again, two inches or so away from your lips as you speak into it. We want to keep transmissions brief, and this is goes across the board. Only say what we, needs to be said over the radio. We're not going to give a very long, drawn-out report to the hospital over the radio. They just want the most important information. If our report is too long, I promise you those nurses are going to stop listening to you at some point. So it's very quick, brief information. When we're speaking on the radios, we use plain English. And we avoid slang and jargon. We want to make sure that whoever we're talking to understands what we're saying. Nursing staff probably doesn't know signals or codes, so we don't use those. <clears throat> when a number could be confusing over the air, follow it with the digits. This is especially true when we are giving things like vital signs. So if I'm giving patients respirations or 13 per minute, I'll say patient is breathing. 13, that is one, three breaths per minute. Blood pressure is 182 over 92. That's 182 over 92. Again, we're spacing them out to make sure that they can clearly understand what we're saying. Give objective information, uh, selected subjective information from the patient assessment. Again, very brief report. In right to your location with a 52-year-old male complaining of chest pain. Patient stated the pain started yesterday, located in the center of his chest, radiates to his left arm. Vital signs are, we've treated the patient with aspirin and nitro. We have an ETA of two or three minutes. Very quick and brief. We're not giving every single detail about that report. It's just a heads up report. If we do receive medical orders over the radio or even the cell phone, we're going to echo those orders back to them. So if I'm calling the physician, asking them what they want us to do, and the doctor orders me to give 
0.4 milligrams of nitro sublingually, I'm going to echo those orders back to the physician. Receive, doc, you've ordered us, to, you've ordered me to administer 0.4 milligrams of nitro sublingually. That's just ensuring that there is no miscommunication. He tells me the order, I repeat the order back to him. That gives both of us an opportunity to uh, make sure that we don't have that mistake or to speak up if we hear a mistake. And we need to write down important information such as addresses, medication orders, and so forth. So we don't have to call back and ask for them to repeat it. We get dispatched to an address, write that address down so we're not calling dispatch two or three times asking them to repeat the address for us. Same thing with medication orders. If it's a complicated medication order, write it down. And again, if we get an order from a physician, we need the physician's name that gave us those orders as well. Again, remember that others can hear what you are saying. Radio traffic can be easily monitored. So HIPAA is in effect. We have to be cautious in what we say. No patient name. Patient's name cannot be stated over the radio. Use terms like we rather than I. Some of these are not that important. You can use terminology such as affirmative for yes, negative for no. And this one I totally disagree with, uh, at least locally in this area. But when you're finished with your report or your traffic, you say over and wait for confirmation from the receiving party. That's typically not done in this region. We just stop talking. That's enough indication that we're done. If we're using phones or cell phone communication, if we're giving, say, a verbal report or a report to inquire about medical direction, the format's going to be basically the same. Big problem with cell phones is dead spots. Everybody, I'm sure, knows that there are certain areas where your cell phone just drops signal for a little bit. Should have a backup plan for communications. If I can't get a hold of them on a cell phone, should be able to hopefully get a hold of them on a radio. And just know the important telephone numbers. Have those pre-programmed into your phone or have them written down somewhere in your truck that if I needed to call UMC on the phone for med control, I don't have to go through the switchboard and get transferred two or three times. I can go up the phone number directly to the physician's area. Communication with dispatch. Dispatch receives information from callers and directs emergency services to the scene. They're gonna, they're that first point of contact. They're talking to the person on the phone and then they're gonna let us know where we're going, what type of call it is as well. Emergency medical dispatchers or EMDs provide instructions to the caller while awaiting EMS arrival. Some dispatches are EMD trained, some are not. All of UMC EMS dispatchers are EMD certified, meaning they're gonna start giving pre-arrival instructions, such as for chest pain, they may tell your patient to take aspirin before we get there. If that's the case, we need to make sure we document the patient took aspirin prior to arrival, and they did so at the direction of our dispatch. Dispatchers may receive information from the Advanced Automatic Collision Notification, the AACN system, and some newer vehicle models. These are things like OnStar and the Chevy product or the GMC products. 
Toyota has their own version. Uh, Dodge has their own version as well. If you get in a car wreck, can't make that 911 call and you have that system activated in your car, they can call 911 for you. This information can be critical in locating the collision, predicting the severity of injury. OnStar has GPS, so they can tell us exactly where that vehicle is located, in theory anyway. They also have some access to important information about the wreck. Was the patient wearing the seatbelt? How fast was that vehicle traveling at that time of the collision and so forth? OnStar can provide you with all of that information. So when we're communicating with dispatch, some common points of communication, times when we're going to reach out to dispatch. Dispatch is going to page up, tell us that we have a call. We're going to get on the radio and acknowledge to dispatch that we've received that call. To advise dispatch when the unit is en route to the call. So we got page, we told them, hey, page received. As soon as we get rolling to that call, we need to let them know we're en route. It's important to note, all these times are documented and many services, they kind of look at these times and use these, there's standards for every one of these times. The time from the moment you receive that call to the moment wheels are rolling en route to the call is known as a shoot time. UMCMS, their standard is you have one minute or less to get in route, one minute shoot time or less. If there's constantly a crew that's over that minute shoot time, that crew is going to get talked to and could face disciplinary action as well. And again, all these times are traced. So we're in route to the call. We let dispatch know. Estimate your time of arrival and report any delays. We typically do not give them how long they, we think it's going to take us to get there. With modern dispatch, we have GPSs in our trucks. Our dispatch knows exactly where we're at, and their computer system will give them an ETA. But if we do have a delay, if we come up across a railroad track and the train is passing, we need to let dispatch know, hey, we're going to be delayed due to railroad or rail, uh, yeah, train. So when we get on scene, we need to let the hot, the uh, receiving facility know we're on scene. I mean, sorry, dispatch know that we're on scene. If we need additional resources, if we need another ambulance because multiple people are hurt, if we need fire for extrication, please, we're going to let them know. Get on scene, we do our, do our work. When we get ready to transport, we're going to let hospital know we're, which hospital we're transporting to. If we're going lights and sirens and code one, may have to tell them how many patients we're transporting. And again, that we don't necessarily give them the estimated time of arrival to the receiving facility. Once we get to the receiving facility, we need to let dispatch know that we're at destination. Whenever we drop off our patient, we get our truck cleaned, we need to let dispatch know that we're available for another call. After we clear the hospital, we leave the hospital. We need to let dispatch know that we're clear of the hospital and route back to our station or a pre-designated uh, coverage area or staging location, posting location. And when we're either at our posting spot or we're back at the station, we typically need to let the, or the dispatch know as well. And again, this doesn't necessarily all have to be over the radio if your service has an MDT. Again, UMCMS has MDTs. A lot of this information, we do it with the push of a button, and we don't have to get on the radio to let dispatch know. The critical times, like we're in route, at scene, we do let dispatch know typically over the radio for those times. 
again, so that's radio traffic that we have to do. There's to, with dispatch, there's other communication that we do with other healthcare professionals as well. So again, one of those areas, maybe if we're needing medical direction, if we need to talk to a physician. I do want to note, and I don't know if I made this perfectly clear last time or not, the only people in Texas that we can get medical direction from is a physician. We cannot take orders from an RN. We cannot take orders from a nurse practitioner or a PA. It has to be a physician only in Texas. <clears throat> so medical direction. Medical direction may be located at the receiving facility or elsewhere. If I'm contacting my personal medical director, Dr. Troutman, for example, there's no telling where Troutman is. He travels more than anybody I've ever met in my life. But I have a cell phone number if I need to get a hold of him. On many calls, you will consult with medical direction. And I highly disagree with that statement, especially in this region. The vast majority of the calls, we don't have to ask for medical direction. We have our standing orders in place that we just follow the protocol. Rarely do we get in situations where we have to contact med control for medical direction. And those medical directors can give you orders and advice on how to best handle the situation. When we're talking with medical direction, again, be very clear. We talked about the radio report to, that we give to a receiving facility is going to be very brief and short. That's just a heads up report. When we're asking for med control, we're going to give a lot deeper, more detailed report. We need to ensure that that medical director, that physician, fully, clearly appreciates the circumstances in order for him to give us good advice. Again, if he gives us orders, we echo or repeat those orders back to him to make sure that there is no miscommunication. We need to ask for clarification of orders if needed. If he says something that we didn't fully understand, ask him the clarifier to repeat those orders back to him. And if the order seems appropriate, inappropriate, ask questions. Don't just blindly follow medical direction because the doctor told you to do it. If you don't think it's appropriate, ask for clarification. Nitro, for example, not supposed to give nitro if their blood pressure is below 90 systolic. We have a chest pain patient with a blood pressure of 78 systolic, and the medical direction tells us to go ahead and give nitro. Don't just blindly follow it. Raise your suspicions or concerns. Hey, doc, I know you want us to give nitro. This patient's blood pressure is only 78 systolic. I'm worried it's going to tank if we give them a nitro. You still want us to go ahead? Then probably he'll back off on it. Or say you're a basic and they tell you to do a finger thoracotomy in the back of the truck. You're not trained, they'll have no idea how to perform that. Don't do it simply because the doctor told you to. Again, raise those concerns with the doctor. Communicate this information to medical direction. These are what we need to tell the medical director. You need to let them know what your unit's identification number and your level of care. I'm calling for orders from UMC ER. I need to tell the physician, hey, this is UMC EMS. You need also, it's not listed in there, but you need to say what service you're from as well and your skill level. This is Mason Powers. From, I'm a paramedic with UMC EMS. Or it could be I am Bailey Bingham from UMC EMS. I'm a basic wanting orders, whatever the case may be. 
patient's age and sex, chief complaint, what's going on with the patient, history of present illness, kind of the circumstances around that chief complaint, patient's past medical history, patient's mental status, their vital signs, anything that we found during the physical exam. Again, a lot more detailed of a report than what we would give to the receiving facility just as a heads up. We need to let them know all the care that we've already provided to the patient as well. If there's been any positive or negative response from that care that we provided or no changes, how is that patient presenting currently? Are they getting better or worse from initial contact staying the same? Request for further interventions or orders. If there's something you want to do, ask for those orders. Hey, doc, I normally do, we normally don't give nitro for these type of patients. I think it would benefit the patient. I'm asking for orders to administer 0.4 milligrams of nitro to this patient. And they're also going to want to know your estimated time of arrival. And this is probably the biggest factor in whether they agree to give you orders or not. If I'm two minutes away from the hospital, do you think that doctor is going to give me orders to do anything? Probably not. They're going to say, just maintain what you got, bring to. Compare that to if I'm 30 minutes away, they're, now they're probably more likely to let me do a little bit more because of that delayed and long transport time. So that's going to be something they definitely are going to want to know. Additional guidelines, we can use the SBAR uh, acronym to organize information, situation, what the situation is, background, pertinent history, assessment, patient's condition, and recommendations, treatment provided, and the request for orders. Just make sure, whether, if, whether you use SBAR or not, just make sure that you fully explain what's going on to that medical, that physician. Communicating with the receiving facility. Pertinent information allows the facility to prepare for the patients while we give them this heads up report that we're in route to their hospital so they can start getting prepared for it. The information that we're going to give to the receiving facility for a heads up report is going to be similar to that of what we provide or give to medical direction. It's just not going to be in as much detail. Again, it's basically just the highlights. We're not going to go into details about all of the patient's medical history unless it's absolutely pertinent. Hospital needs to know that now. And we need to notify the facility of changes that occur after the report is given. We have that patient that was having chest pain that was conscious alert when alluring in with decent bottle signs. After I gave radio report, told them how far out we are, patient then goes unresponsive. I need to get back on the radio and say, hey, patient's condition worse and now they are now unresponsive. Here's the updated vital signs and so forth. Let them know the situation changes. Yeah. So is the med um, the medical director's responsibility for indirect medical oversight, creating the processes that are considered like offline medical direction? I guess what I'm asking is the difference between indirect medical oversight and offline medical direction. So indirect is more referring to like our SOPs. What's our triage stat, uh, stat or our triage scheme for a mass casualty incident? 
how should patients be properly uh, secured to the stretcher? That's indirect, kind of the SOPs more than anything. Direct is patient care. So in direct medical direction can be online or offline. Offline is standing orders or protocols. Online is physically talking to the physician. Answer your question, bud? Yes. Okay. So once we get to the hospital, we gave them that heads up report. Now we get to the hospital. Now we're going to give them a handover report, provide an oral report on arrival at the receiving facility. This is going to be much more detailed than our radio report. Again, we're going to tell pretty much that nursing staff, typically nursing staff, everything that occurred, what the patient said, how the patient presented, everything. Allergies, medications they're taking, and so forth. When transferring patient care, the report should include current condition of the patient, age, gender, chief complaint, pertinent history, how you found the patient. Again, we're just basically telling the story in oral form to give the receiving facility a report. Major past illnesses, vital signs that we've obtained, any pertinent exam findings that we found during our assessment, all of the treatments we provided to the patient, and the patient's response to those treatments as well. Again, full picture in a oral report to nursing staff. Key, when communing, communicating patient information to the emergency department, use a standard format every time. This will assure that it, the important information is not omitted. Again, there's kind of no right or wrong way to give a report, radio report, oral report. Just make sure you do it the same every time. Get Find your own system that works for you and continue to use it to make sure that you don't forget anything. And nurses are good. If you forget to tell them what the patient's allergic to, that's, they're going to ask you. So again, it's a team effort. If we forget something, hopefully the nurses need that information and they ask us for clarification. Mason, yep. can you elaborate a little bit on the um, transfer from ambulance to hospital and the interactions with EMT? Because from my understanding, I guess the idea that I have is we're usually just kind of in the doorway. Um, but our inclusion of like the OR cap and other stuff, how much are we going into the hospital and assisting inside the hospital with patient care? versus exterior to the hospital, because may, I may have a little bit of a disconnect on how so much we're involved on that. Are we talking about clinicals, or are we talking about as, you work, as you're working on an ambulance? Practice, in practice on, on the ambulance, like we, we have, graduated. We, we do very little inside the hospitals. As soon as we get through that hospital door, it's the hospital's patient. We will wheel into whatever room they want us to. We will help move the patient from our stretcher to their bed. We will assist them in taking off our equipment. But other than that, they're gonna have, especially for critical patients, they're gonna have all the resources they need. After we give our report, our job's done, we're leaving. Now there are some exceptions. Uh, many institutions are going, if we got an active MI, uh, patients having an active heart attack, we may, go, we may take the patient directly to the cath lab. So 
So we may be putting across the hospital to go to the cath lab. Again, treatment-wise, we're not going to do anything in the hospital. If we bring in a stroke victim, we're going to go directly to CT instead of the ED room. But again, we're not doing any care in the hospital. We're just using our stretchers and 30 on it as a transport vehicle. <clears throat> and it, there may be differences. If you work for a small rural town, I'll, I'll use Seminole because I've worked in Seminole for a while. They have one or two nurses on staff at a time. If they, we bring something in critical and the doctor's not even there yet. Now we may stay and kind of help them stabilize the patient, play a little bit in the hospital a lot until that doctor gets there. But larger services, it's not standard. If our job ends pretty much treatment-wise as soon as we walk through that door. Yeah, I'm, that's kind of where my direction is. My wife, she works out in Florida as an ER doctor, so. Yeah, you'll I'm, probably, you'll probably help. I, I would assume small old Floyd data with level four trauma center. Yeah, you'll probably, yeah, I mean, yeah, you'll probably help a little bit. Old Plainview does that a little bit too. They may ask for additional IVs. The nurses are busy. They may ask one of the paramedics to help start an IV and so forth. So make sure you're not going outside your scope. They ask you to do a Foley, don't insert a Foley. And yeah, so mostly I'm going to be there, there running the bag or something like yeah. that while the nurses yeah. are doing the real stuff. Right. Hanging drips if they need the drip hanged or stuff like that. So team communication and dynamics. So kind of getting away from uh, radio traffic, giving oral reports, we're just talking about kind of communication in general. Taking charge. That, again, that's an important role and responsibility for us on an ambulance is we need to be able to take charge. We must be able to confident, uh, competently take charge of that situation. Bystanders are looking to us for uh, reassurance to control the situation. We need to be able to step up and do so. EMTs interact with fire crews, rescue crews, law enforcement, and other healthcare professionals on a daily basis, on a call basis. We're going to have to, at the very least, work with other healthcare providers. Some calls, we're going to work with all of them on one single call. Again, we are there as a patient advocate. We're not worried about or necessarily care about how the fire department is going to cut that car to get the patient out of that, out of that car. That's not our job. Our there is to advocate the good for proper care. So we just need to make sure what everybody else is doing, their responsibilities, cut the vehicle, get the patient out. We just need to be able to make sure that this is what the patient needs and it's being done safely. Using radio codes, <clears throat> signals, codes, TIN codes over the radio. There are some advantages to codes. You can shorten radio airtime instead of saying that we are needing a police officer immediately because this patient's a danger to us, we can get on the radio and say signal 21. Can provide information clearly and concisely. Again, signal 21 is meaning we need law enforcement now, EMS crew is in danger. So again, signal 21, everybody knows what that means. Can allow for some privacy by transmitting information not easily understood by bystanders. Again, we know what a signal, I'm just using this as an example, a 21 is, the general public may not know. However, you can Google UMC EMS's signals, and you could probably find it on the internet really quickly if you wanted to. When we used signals, we typically don't use signals anymore. 
disadvantages. They're useless unless they're understood by all in the system. So if I'm a supervisor and I get on the radio and say, Selena, I need you to signal 18 me. If you don't know what signal 18 is, you're not going to have any clue what I'm talking about. Again, it has to be universally understood. Signal 18 is called me on the phone. Medical communication may be too complex to convey in codes. Again, we have to accurately describe what's going on with the patient. They may not fit in a not nice, neat category or signal. Some codes are used infrequently and must be looked up. Again, signal 18 is to call me. If I say I need to be signal 14, again, that's a code that UMC's had for or signal for years and not used very frequently. I can't remember. It's either I need fuel or I want to eat. I can't remember which one it is. So again, it's infrequent. I would have to look it up to make sure somebody told me that. And this is the standard. DOT has been pushing for this. FEMA has been pushing for this as well. They want us to use plain English over the, line, over the radio. We should not be using signals or codes. They just want us to talk in plain English. UMCMS has done a good job. There's still some signals and codes they use. If I need, if I'm getting attacked and I need police officer immediately, we can still use signal 21. Everybody knows what that is. And I'm not alerting the suspect, whoever, that I'm contacting law enforcement. So there's still advantages, even though we kind of phased it out. Times. Clocks, again, must be accurate and in sync. And this is important right here. When we're talking about times, we use military time, 24-hour clock. So 1427 is 2.27 p.m. 0300 or, or 0030 is 30 minutes after midnight. For documentation and just in reports and so forth, we always use military time. So if you do not understand how military time works, this is something that you are going to have to work on. From here on out, all my emails that I send with times or updates is going to be in military time. It's just something I'm used to, and I typically do that anyway. But again, you have to use military time. Most service services utilize all times from the dispatch center. Again, those hard times that have to be documented in route, on scene, transporting at destination, those all come from dispatch in most areas. Radio terms, frequent, frequently used words or short phrases are used to concisely convey meaning. Some of these are used, some of these are just in the mind idea kind of ridiculous. Break, clear, copy, ETA, SMA time of arrival, 10-4. Again, that's a 10 code, but I think everybody, even the, a lay person knows what 10-4 means. Landline means cell phone or phone. Standby means wait, over, means I'm done talking. And it is important for each EMT to understand and utilize the terms used in that service area. Therapeutic communication. Principles of patient communication. Communication is an essential part of your job as an EMT and can mean the difference in appropriate and inappropriate care, especially when we're dealing with medicals. A lot of the information, pertinent information we're getting is coming from talking with the patients. We may not see nothing externally, but a whole lot can be going on that we can only get by talking. 
So being able to talk to a patient is vital for this job. Therapeutic communication fosters a positive patient relationship. Messages are composed of thoughts, ideas, information, emotion. We may have to weed through some of that to get the stuff that we need. And many factors can influence how a person interprets this message. So it's not only the words that we're saying, it's how we're saying it. Things like nonverbal communication and body language are going to be important as well. So the communication process. Sender has an idea or a message. The sender encodes that message. So I want to ask Abby a question. I'm going to think what that question is, and then I'm going to encode the message. I'm going to think about how I want to say it. Then I'm going to send the message. I'm going to speak the words. Abby is going to hear what I'm asking her. She's going to hear it. Then she's going to think about it, kind of decode, ask, well, okay, what is, he, what is he wanting to know? Think about it. And then he, she's going to give me feedback. Feedback received by sender helps to determine if the message was received as desired. She's going to answer my question ask for clarification, seem stumped, that should indicate to me that I didn't ask that clearly, I need to ask it a different way. Communication responses. There's four techniques to improve provider and patient communication, things that we can do to help open that patient up and get them to talk. Factors like facilitation, we'll talk about these individually. Clarification. Patient says something we don't fully understand, ask them to clarify. We can summarize what that patient is telling us and explanation as well. So facilitation encourages the patients to provide more information. Give me something like as that patient is talking to me, I can say things like go on, continue, something as simple as just kind of nodding my head shows that patient that they are, what they're saying to me is stuff that I am needing and it encourages them to keep talking. Clarification, asking more questions to clarify a previous patient statement. Again, if something's not making sense, ask the patient to clarify. Okay, you said you've been having stomach or abdominal pain. Can you tell me a little bit more about that abdominal pain? Where is it hurting? How long has it been hurting and so forth? Again, it's making sure that we understand the patient. Summary, summarize the patient's statement to clarify its meaning and verify that your summary is correct. After the patient gets done talking to us for a little bit, we're just gonna basically summarize everything they said, repeat it back to them, leaving only hitting the important parts and then asking the patient, do I have that correctly? Is what I just said correct? An explanation, explain to your patient in a way that he or she can understand. Procedures, treatments, transport, et cetera. It's our responsibility to try to clearly explain to the patient or ask or communicate with the patient. We avoid medical jargon, big, long, fancy medical terms that the patient's not gonna know or understand. We don't need to use those terms with them or words with them. Other communication responses, that can be used or that we might see in our patients is silence. We ask a patient a question, they may be silent for a little bit after, afterward. It's 
silence is not a bad thing in some in case some cases. This allows time to think, gain insight. We're processing, or the patient's processing that information, thinking about how they want to respond later. And again, this should not be fear. Empathy, the ability to recognize and understand another state of mind or feelings. We have to be able to put our, ourselves in our patient's shoes, be empathetic to what they're going through. Confrontation. Sometimes it is necessary to confront patients about discrepancies in the statements, feelings, attitudes, beliefs, or behavior. They may tell us conflicting information. And we need to confront that conflicting information to figure out exactly what's going on. Should not be done through anger and aggression. And if we are going to confront a patient, should be uh, only done to utilize to act in the patient's best interest. So if we go on a patient at a bar at two o'clock in the morning that reeks of alcohol, that's been throwing up, can't stand up, and we ask the patient if they've been drinking alcohol and they tell us no, and it's obvious they have, we may need to confront it. But we do so professionally and not out of anger. Hey man, I know you told me you haven't been drinking. It's two o'clock in the morning, you're in a bar, you're throwing up, I can smell alcohol on you. We're not here to get you in trouble. Medically, we need to know if you've been drinking. It's gonna help us determine how the best way to treat you is. So again, that's confronting the patient's statement, but we're doing so professionally and politely. Facilitated communication is assisting the patient with a communication device. The patient can't hear very well and has hearing aids. We can help them get their hearing aids, make sure their hearing aids are turned on. Supporting the patient's hand, wrist, arm, shoulder, or elbow so the patient can select letters on a letter board, keyboard, other communication device, again, whatever we can do to help ensure that a patient can communicate with us. People at an emergency scene may be experiencing high intentions, emotions, which can affect communications as well. Again, we often see patients in the worst days of their life. They're going to be very emotional in some situations. We have to work through that. So we can use the three C's. We need to show that we're confident in our ability. Again, if we're freaking out, we don't look confident. That's going to make the patient freak out or family freak out that much more. We need to show compassion to the patient, to the family members as well, and work to try to gain cooperation with them. Patient contact. As soon as we lay eyes on that patient, first impressions are critical when the patient lays eyes on us and includes your appearance and professionalism. In order for that patient to open up and to talk to us, we got to start building that report. We need to gain that trust from the patient. And if we don't look professional, we look dirty, wrinkled uniforms, and or so forth, they get a poor first impression. It's going to be that much harder for them to open up and to trust us fully. When we're dealing with patients, we should introduce yourself to the patient, your team, ask the patient's name, determine what he or she wishes to be called, either by their first name, Mr. or Mrs. last name, whatever the case may be. And while we're talking to the patient, we should use their name in talking to them. That shows that we know their name and that we kind of care about them if we're using their name. 
But again, the first words out of our mouths and 90% of our patient calls should be, hi, my name is Mason Powers. I'm a paramedic with UMCMS. What's going on today? I'm asking, I'm introducing myself by asking what's going on today. Hopefully I'm gonna get the chief complaint right off the bat. Obtain permission to treat. Again, we have to have consent. Is it okay to check your vital signs? Is it okay if we take you to our truck? Again, if the patient refuses anything, seek to understand why they're trying to refuse. Maybe related to fear, defense mechanism. Again, try to figure out why they're refusing and try to find a way to work around it. Be aware of defense mechanisms, coping strategies to protect from unwanted feelings or thoughts. They may downplay their signs and symptoms. Uh, again, because they're scared. I'm okay, it's no big deal. Our patient fell, we had to come help them up, trying to get into the hospital, it's okay, I always fall. Again, they may be afraid that if they go to the hospital, something may actually be wrong with them. They're trying to hide from it instead of confronting. Speak clearly, calmly, slowly, use plain English or plain language when we're talking to a, a patient, avoid medical jargon. Again, we're not going to impress them by spouting big, long medical words. Talk in a way that the patient understands. Speak professionally with concern, compassion. And again, respect the patient's privacy and decency. If the patient's not dressed, Take steps to help him. Either help him get dressed, cover him, at the very least, cover him with a sheet or a blanket. We're wheeling him out to the truck. Keep them covered while we're out in public and so forth. Limited interruptions in communication. The patient needs to be the one that is doing the majority of the talking. So we ask very open-ended questions, and we want the patient to answer those questions. We try to avoid interrupting them while they're talking. Nonverbal communication is going to be important as well. We need to be aware of your position relative to the patient's uh, to the patient. Body language, use of space are all things that we need to think about. Body language, again, nonverbal communication often is going to reflect more of our feelings than the words that are coming out of our mouths. Take steps to control the physical environment. We're out in public and it's a just a very chaotic situation. Patient's probably not going to open up and talk to us. So, if possible, uh, amount of noise and light. If we can't control the scene, put them on our stretcher, load them to the back of the truck. We have absolute control of the environment in the back of the truck. Be courteous. Give choices when possible. Which hospital would you like to go to? Which arm would you like need to take a the blood pressure on? Things like that. Simple things can go a long way with building that trust with that patient. Actively listen to your patient. Again, hear what they are saying. And be honest with your answers and statements made to the patient. Again, we're not going to lie to our patient. So our patient interview, talking to our patient. We conduct an interview to gain information. We want to figure out what's going on with the patient. Again, with medicals, we're going to get most of this through our interview. We need to know what questions we need to ask. Again, the questions we're gonna ask may be indicated by how the patient asked the previous question. So again, we need to 
use all this information to decide what's our next question going to be. The use of interviewing techniques allow you to gather the necessary information. Hey, Mason. Yep. Um, you mentioned a couple slides ago asking the patient what hospital they would like to go to. Um, how much um, determine like how much authority do we have to actually accommodate that request? Depending on where you're working from, working at. In Lubbock, we we have a lot of leeway there in most cases. Most patients are going to have their choice of which hospital they want to go to. Either UMC, Covenant, in most cases, Love of Heart can handle the vast majority of patients as well. Certain situations, though, they're probably not really going to have a choice. Again, if it's a stroke, they need to go to Covenant. If it's a burn, they need to go to UMC. If it's a major trauma, they do not need to go to Love of Heart Hospital. So again, we have some discretion. Vast majority of the time, though, patient can pick. Now, if you work in Plainview, and they're so short staffed, their policy is pretty much all patients need to go to the local hospital. So if a patient wants to go to Lovett, we may not be able to take them directly to Lovett. They may first have to go to local hospital. Again, this is very dependent on where you're working at and patient condition as well. So the patient interview, nonverbal communication. This includes things like our posture. Looking just looking at these two providers, which one do we think has the best body language? The one on the left who's knelt down with the patient, touching the patient's hand, or the one on the right who's towering over the patient with their arms crossed, acting like they're disinterested. So again, your nonverbal communication is going to be important. Position yourself relative to the patient. We typically want to be at eye level with the patient. So if they're sitting, we typically drop to a knee. Again, if you try with your nonverbal communication to convey a message of concern. The distance that we're away from the patient is going to be important as well. Us as EMS, we're going to get in the patient what they refer to as the intimate zone, which is right next to the patient, making physical contact with the patient. However, we don't need to immediately rush into that intimate zone. We will introduce ourselves from a distance, try to build at least some basic rapport with the patient, then we will approach that intimate zone. Again, always situational, the patient's completely unresponsive, that we don't care about how they're feeling right now about us getting too close. They don't care. We need to immediately get a patient's side. Facial expressions, eye contact, should make eye contact with our patients while we're speaking with them. Hepatics is the study of touching, and touch can be very effective to show that we care and to console patients as well, putting our hand on the patient's shoulder, putting our hand on top of the patient's hand, so forth. Asking questions. When we're asking questions to our patient, we should only ask one question at a time. We're not gonna ask them two or three questions all at once. Again, that can confuse the patient, stuff may get omitted. So we ask one question, allow the patient to answer that question, then we move on and ask another one. Again, we need to make sure that we're giving the patient time to answer those questions as well. Listen to the response. 
And again, watch how we're speaking. We should choose language that the patient understands, no medical jargon. Uh, again, we, we have to communicate in a way that the patient understands and can communicate back. Language barriers, things along those we'll talk about, we have to try to find ways to overcome that. Our goal is when we're asking a patient question, we should always use, in most cases, at least initially, we should use open-ended questions. Those are questions that don't have a yes or no response. Again, open-ended, we're going to get clearer information. It's going to allow the patient to prioritize or to state to us what they think is important, and we can always ask for clarification later. If I ask them what's going on today and they tell me chest pain, that's going to immediately give me that chief complaint instead of asking the patient, okay, are you having shortness of breath? Or is your abdomen hurting? Is your legs hurting? Are you having chest pain? It takes me four or five questions where just asking an open-ended question immediately gets me there. So it allows the patient to give a detailed response, again, in their own words. And again, this is generally better for eliciting information. So again, we always try to start off with, at least initially, open-ended questions. Answers if provide they, detailed information. Go ahead. Um, if they don't have like, let's say like the mental capacity to like answer like an open-ended question or maybe even some just like yes or no questions, how do we yeah. go about that? Then we'll move to closed-ended questions. Again, general patients, we always try to use open-ended questions. There are certain situations where we can't. Once we realize an open-ended question is not going to work, now we can move more to closed-ended questions if that'll work. Examples, how are you feeling? Where are you hurting? Again, what's going on today? What medical conditions do you have? Again, it's not a simple yes or no response. They have to give us more information. Closed-ended questions. Again, in certain situations, we may have to use closed-ended questions. Also called, called direct questions. Used to get information quickly or to follow up on an open-ended question to get specific. And again, these are typically yes or no responses in most cases. This is also useful if the patient's just over-talking. We have a patient's complaining of chest pain and we ask about previous medical history and they start telling us about skinning their knee or breaking their foot when they were 13 years or 13 years old and now they're 89, not relevant. They just keep rambling and rambling on. At that point, now we may, may need to move more to closed end questions to get specific information quickly. What medications do you take? Or more, I think a better closed ended question is, do you take any medications? Are you having trouble breathing? Yes, no. Do you have diabetes? Yes, no response. Some other considerations in interviewing. Try to avoid asking leading questions or biased type of questions. We don't want to suggest answers to the patient. So again, we may ask closed-ended questions, but we don't want to try to persuade them any way or another to answer that certain question. Try to avoid interrupting the patient. We allow the patient time to think and respond to the questions that we are asking. And be aware of talking, of too much talking by you or the patient. Again, during our interview, the patient needs to be the one doing the majority of the questions. We ask very short, open-ended questions, allow the patient to answer. 
If the patient again is overly talkative, now we need to probably move more to closed ended questions or we're gonna be here for 30 or 40 minutes before we figure out what's going on with the patient. And for us, we limit talking and employ active listening. Patient does the majority of the talking. We do not provide false reassurances. We be honest with our patients, but at the same time, we are not heartless to them as well. Show that compassion, show that empathy. Generally address the patient's concerns if we can do so. And it's okay to say, we don't know. If we don't know what's fully going on, we can tell them, man, I'm not exactly sure what's causing these. It's gonna be best for you to go ahead and go to the hospital, let a physician look at you, let the physician tell you what's going on. And we gotta avoid giving inappropriate advice. As well, again, the best advice, and this is pretty much policy, if we run on a patient with a complaint, our advice, you need to go to the hospital and get checked out by a physician. If we give inappropriate advice, and I don't think you need to go, I think you'll be okay, something does happen that's opening us up to even more liability for lawsuits and so forth. So we go on a patient, patient has a complaint, most policies are going to indicate our advice, go to the hospital, get evaluated. We don't want to ask any type of why questions that imply blame to the patient that, well, this happened, why did you do this, implying that this is your fault, even though it may obviously be the patient's fault. Remain impartial, non-judgmental. Manage, we need to manage the presence and interactions of the family members. Patient, if family members around the patient, we can ask the patient is okay if the family Stays around you. If, again, if it's if they're hiding something, <clears throat> let me move on. May need to separate the family from the patient as well. Again, we happens pretty occasionally as well. Family members, if our patients not wanting their family to know, family's on scene when we ask that question, are they going to be honest with us? Probably not. So at certain times we may want to separate family and patient. Perfect example. We have a 15-year-old female who is having lower abdominal pain. Anytime we have a, pa a female patient of childbearing age complaining of abdominal pain, we're gonna have to ask about sexual activity, the possibility of being pregnant. Is that 15 year old gonna wanna answer in front of her dad if she's sexually active or not? God, I would hope not. If my daughter, she's only eight, if she ever did that in front of me, I would lose my shit, probably. So we don't need to ask those type of questions in front of mom or dad. Separate, get the kid, the 15-year-old in the back of the truck, mom and dad's not back there with us. Now we can ask those types of questions. Remember, if a competent adult, only the patient can consent or refuse. And this is another thing. If the patient has the mental capacity to refuse care, nobody can overrule that. And we see this all the time. Typically, it's a man. Uh, have a 62-year-old male complaining of chest pain. We get wife calls us to come check him out. We get on scene that 62-year-old male's alert, well-oriented, has the capacity to refuse, says he's not going to the hospital. His wife says, I don't care what he says. He needs to go to the hospital. Y'all need to load him up and take him. Can we take him? Nope. If he makes his own decision. He has the capacity to refuse. His wife can't consent for him in that case. Mason, question. Yeah. Um, if we have a minor in the vehicle and we need to get the medical information, just like you stated, but the parent refuses to 
leave the child's side, we can't force the parent to wait, right? No, not really. However, our our policy states that if a family member wants to ride with us to the hospital, even if we're dealing with the minor, the family member should sit in the front and be fully restrained in a seatbelt. Explain that to the family, man. I, I know you want to go with this. The only way we can allow that is you have to ride in front. If, yeah, and if, everybody I'm sure has seen an ambulance. There's no way somebody in the passenger seat of the cab is going to be here when I'm talking to the patient in the back. So there's ways around pretty much everything. Wait, um, question. Yeah. Um, so how far does competence go? So like if the patient is going to die, but he is showing that he is competent, how far does that go? Like how much leadway does that give? If he's conscious, competent, he has a right to refuse. Even if he's going to die, we tell him he's going to die. He continues to refuse. He has a right to refuse. Again, until he goes unresponsive, if he goes unresponsive, now he loses that ability to refuse care. And it's happened. We've patient refused. We begged him to go, doesn't want to go. We get him to sign our refusal, explain everything to him. We leave 10, 15 minutes later, family's calling us back because he went unresponsive. At that point, you can no longer refuse to be taken to the hospital. Uh, I had a quick question. Yeah. Um, if we have a minor and two parents are arguing over whether or not to, like one parent wants us to, um, you know, you. take him to the hospital and the other doesn't, we only need the one saying, yes, do it to do it. You only okay. need one person's consent. So Mom says, yeah, take them. Dad says, no, I don't want them to take take them. We have the permit, we have consent to treat and transport. Um, would there ever be like a like a situation where the minor want to go to the hospital, but the parents like just say like no? I mean very, very rarely, but it yeah, it's possible. And again, ultimately, we're gonna do what the parents tell us to do. Now, if we think that minor needs to go to the hospital and the parents are refusing to take that patient to the hospital, hey, that's going to indicate to us that, hey, something's fishy going on, and this is could be a negligent case, negligence, or worst case, possibly abuse. So at that point, if I think the kid needs to go, mom or dad's not wanting the kid to go, kid wants to go, I'm calling law enforcement, getting them involved as well. But it, as a dad, and those in here that have kids probably understand this. If a medical professional tells me my kid needs to go to the hospital, I'm probably not going to argue with that medical professional. I'm going to say, okay, let's go. I'm going to do whatever I can to protect the kid. And that's how normal family members should be. So again, if they're acting, if that raises suspicion to you, that should tell you something's not right about that situation. All right, motivating the unmotivated patient. Should use appropriate language at the appropriate level. We should not be yelling at our patients and so forth. Provide positive feedback, get them to open up. If they're real quiet, it's not talking to us. Again, do what we can to try to gain that cooperation. If we're asking them questions, again, explain why you need the requested information. Again, that drunk patient that denied alcohol when he was obviously using it. It's in his best interest medically. Again, we're not worried about getting him in trouble. We need to know medically that he's been drinking alcohol or not. Again, explain to him why we need that information. If we have a hostile patient, utilize law enforcement 
as necessary. If they're getting verbally abusive and we're getting worried that this could turn physical, law enforcement needs to be in, on scene with us. We should stay calm and professional. Again, reassure the, the, that patient that's getting hostile with us that, hey, man, we're only here to help you. Again, we're not here to get you in trouble. We're not the cops. We don't care. We just need to know medically to help. And if I'm able to... Go ahead. Um, going back to like reporting situations, if you do have to end up um, calling law enforcement, do we write that on our report? Yeah. Says, so got on scene, crew noted that the patient was very hostile, yelling and screaming, cussing at EMS. Law enforcement was contacted and requested, something along those lines. If unable to succeed, treatment should be kept at only what is necessary and transport. If he's letting us take him, but he's extremely hostile, then just do whatever we need to do to make sure he's not going to die in route to the hospital and transport. That, that may include not taking bottle signs. Patient will only agree to go with us if we don't take bottle signs. We talked about earlier that two sets of bottle signs are required, right? In that case, again, we just, if we can document and justify why we didn't, then it's okay. Patient agreed to go with us to the hospital, but refused to allow us to assess bottle signs. Special circumstances that we may come across, transcultural considerations, different cultures may see, uh, it may be harder to communicate effectively with different types of cultures. Elderly patients, and very young patients as well. So transcultural considerations, things like space. Cultures view space differently, so watch for feedback. If we, again, get real close to a patient, they get extremely uncomfortable and try to back away from us. Stop, back up, try to talk to them, explain to them why we need to touch them and get right next to them. If there's a language barrier, try to seek an interpreter. Request another EMS service that has a translator. Uh, another first responder, law enforcement, uh, family members if we absolutely have to. Again, there's translating services on phones, phone numbers that we can call as well. And be aware of potential filtering of information by the interpreters. This is not a big deal if it's another healthcare provider. That's why another healthcare provider makes the, the best interpreter. However, if we have a Spanish-speaking patient, me and my partner doesn't speak Spanish, but the, a family member speaks Spanish and English. I'm probably just going to use the family member as an interpreter. We need to explain to that interpreter, I want you to ask and translate exactly what I'm asking to the patient. And that patient's response, I want you to tell me exactly word for word, best you can, what that patient is telling me. We don't want them to filter or for them to decide what's important and not important. The translator, that's for us to decide. So again, just tell them to translate exactly what we're saying. So like if you get the Spanish interpreter, would you just uh, give the patient like, uh, like would you give the patient to that? Uh, EMS instead and just let them transport to the hospital? Again, it's going to be very situational. If if I've requested, I, we typically are not, in most cases, will not request another unit, especially a larger city that's busy, because now we're tying up two resources instead of the one. But if it's, say it's a first responder, it's, it's my supervisor in a truck that speaks Spanish. 
if it's something critical, then yeah, I may have that supervisor right in the back with me to help translate throughout transport. Family members, again, if, we, if it's that critical, we're, we probably wouldn't be waiting around on scene for another ambulance to get there anyway. So again, it's just very situational. Considerations for elderly patients. When we're dealing with the elderly, additional time may be needed when interviewing an elderly patient. They typically process information slower, so they may take more time in order to answer that question. Don't make assumptions about hearing and vision problems about the elderly. Don't just assume that just because he's 90 years old, he's probably blind and deaf. But we do need to be alert that there is higher instances of being blind and deaf as they age. So again, do whatever we can to help with that communication. If they have hearing aids that are not in, go find their hearing aids. Make sure they're turned on, turned up. If that still can't communicate or they don't have hearing aids, we with a somebody that's hard of hearing, we can just write down our questions on a sheet of paper and then have them answer the question. Whatever we need to do in order to communicate with our patients. For kiddos, use extra patience with kiddos and understand their fears. Kids are going to be scared of strangers. They're going to Oftentimes, they uh, uh, think about healthcare doctors with shots and injections, so that they're going to be very scared. Obtain the parent's assistance in communicating with the child. Parents can be your best friend in when we're dealing with the kid. Have mom or dad hold that kid while we're assessing. Have mom or dad ask the kid to cooperate with this. If we need their left arm, for a blood pressure, ask the family to ask the patient to hold out their left arm. They're more likely going to listen to people they know and trust. Position yourself at the child's eye level. Again, we don't want to tower over small kids. This is going to increase that fear, that intimidation. Use simple and direct language with them. And again, be honest. Don't lie to them. If we are going to have to stick them with the needle, say to check a blood sugar, and they ask us if it's going to hurt, is a needle going in their skin going to hurt? Yep, it's going to it's going to hurt a little bit, buddy, but it's not going to last very long. It's going to be real quick. They're more likely going to forgive you for hurting them slightly with a needle stick than they are going to forgive you for a lying to them. Now, with all that being said, if we have a true life or death situation, this kid is very critical that needs immediate intervention or could possibly die, we're not going to try to sit there and reason with that unreasonable or that unruly kid. We do what we do and need to do in order to save the kid's life. That requires us to restrain them and then immediately treat them. That's what we can do. EMS system communication, therapeutic communication are key EMT skills. When we're dealing with radio equipment, it includes base stations, mobile radios, portable radios, and uh, repeaters. And just kind of remember some of those basic rules for radio communication as well. We will communicate with dispatch multiple times throughout those calls. Again, dispatch it typically is our official timekeeper, so all those times typically are kept by dispatch. We may also have to direct communicate with medical direction, 
we will have to communicate with receiving hospital staff. Again, being able to have that good therapeutic communication is critical for good patient care. And we'll talk more about communication, history taking, and so forth once we get into patient assessment steps. But if you cannot communicate or effectively